This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Leah, and Leah was in a toxic relationship with a leech of a narcissist. It's a story of bonding over trauma, smear campaigns, believing things were your fault, and standing in your truth. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. And this is a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of toxic relationships. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad. And thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. And now, before we get to our episode with Leah, I first want to thank everyone in the Narcissist Apocalypse community for listening to the show and sharing your thoughts by email, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, a reminder, if you have not left us a review on whatever podcast service you use, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, CastBox, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, please leave us a five-star written review as it helps out the show a lot when it comes to rankings. Now, if you've not been to our website recently, Please do go there if you want to be part of our show. Go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com, fill out the guest form, and we will go from there. But the quickest way, actually, I'm taking that back. But another way to be part of the show is to also go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com and to read a letter to your narcissist. So if you want to read your letter, on the side of the page, there's a floating button that says voicemail. Click that button, records up to five minutes, twice, 10 minutes, three times, 15 minutes. Go to NarcissistApocalypse.com to click that button. And if you do not want to read the letter yourself and you want me or my old pal Melissa to read the letter for you, just send it to NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com and put letters in the subject line. What else do we have here today? 
Well, to help support our show, join our Patreon. Yes, we have a Patreon. We have episodes that never made it to air, follow-up episodes with former guests, and much more. What is that much more? Well, let me tell you, we have virtual support groups on there, and we also have our own forum board and chat board on there as well, so everyone can interact with each other and support each other. It's a great community on there. We had a good group on Wednesday last week, on on Saturday last week, so a big shout-out to everyone in our Patreon, in our support groups. And now, before we start our show, also, to go and sign up for that, go to patreon.com slash NarcissistApocalypse. Become a patron of our Patreon. I was a little ahead of myself there because I was getting to something a little important, something um, you know I care a lot about, a person I care about, and uh, someone I've known for 15 years who I've uh, worked with uh, before. Uh, her name is Priscilla, and I was uh, talking with her in the last couple of weeks, and I found out yesterday that she is not doing well after a round of tests, uh, and her health is not going well. And she asked me for prayers. So I said, I will send you all the prayers I have. But I was also hoping you know, to, to help put her in a better mood. She is a, a big, uh, she's very uh, religious, and I just wanted to have other people maybe say prayers for you. So whoever is listening and wants to help me out with the recorder on the website at NarcissistApocalypse.com, um, with the recorder on the website at NarcissistApocalypse.com, if anyone who wants, wants to put in a recording to say uh, any prayer or tell Priscilla that they wish her well and that they're thinking of her, uh, that would be wonderful so I can stitch them all together and play them for her. She's uh, much older than me, uh, but we share the same birthday. So every year we um, usually we do something, uh, we have a lunch or, or something like that on our birthday, or we at least get gifts for each other. So uh, if anyone wants to, um, you know, help me out and help Priscilla out, lift her spirits and wants to uh, leave a message on our voicemail, please do so. And last thing now about the show today. Um, there is just one little warning. We do mention sexual assault. It's very, very brief. There's no graphic description of anything at all. And that is that. I just want to thank uh, Leah for being part of the show. And she did a great job. And now without further ado, here is my episode with Leah. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Leah. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm really happy to be here, and hopefully I do uh, your show justice with the story I have to offer. Oh, well, I, I know you will. We spoke before. I know you're going to do a great job. We spoke for about 30 minutes last time to prep for this because we got a time schedule to keep and uh, we're going to keep it. So (laughs) let's just get started and I'm going to get out of your way. Thank you, Leah, for being here and sharing your story with us today. I know you're going to help a lot of people. And without further ado, Leah, the floor is now yours. Thank you. Really, it is my pleasure. I, I, in some ways, I wish I wasn't here, but since I am, I'll, I'll do my best to give you my story. So um, just starting with where I was at in my life, when before <laughs> the last decade started, 
I was really well established. I had a career. I was like 10 years into my career. I traveled the world and I'd never really thought of um, success in the standard terms, but even still, I had accomplished a lot of that. I owned my own house. I actually had a second house uh, back where I used to live with this sort of future planning of, of uh, how my life would look. And, and, um, and I wasn't planning to have children. I really just felt like I'd figured out how I could be in the world and felt like I could make a difference. I always wanted to make a difference in the world. And now I, I giggle. I don't know. It's not even really funny, but anyway, so that's where I was. And like, this is an example of how I felt like I kind of accomplished something. Like it wasn't buying the houses that, that made me feel like an adult. It was like, I'd learned how to enjoy like a nice glass of red wine and I balanced my work life. And I, like I said, I felt like I was um, making a difference and I'd, like I said, with traveling, I traveled the world. I did, um, I would go on trips, like bringing supplies um, to different parts of the third world. And like, I just felt like I, I was able to do things that I'd wanted to. I accomplished, accomplished dreams that I had. And, um, and they were a big deal because I'd come from a really challenging home. And I, I really, oh, I felt like I'd overcome a lot of what my childhood was about and like I had been on my own since I'm 15 and really succeeded. I managed to get through school and, uh, and then like I actually graduated early. I biked across Canada and then this leads right into how I met this person. And that was that right after I came back from um, my cross Canada trip, I was 18 and uh, my brother, so I, I, I have a lot of siblings. I'm like, the, my dad had six children and I'm the, the last of his six children. So my next older brother and I had, were full brother and sister. And that same summer that I came back from my trip, he died and he had died in a car accident, very suddenly, obviously car accident. And, um, and so that's where I met this person. And uh, he was a friend of my brother. And so we had this shared trauma. He was with a woman at the time and her, um, her sister was, and my brother were dating and they both died in this accident. And so over the years, we continued to be in touch. I had um, met uh, my um, several, my brother had no longer lived where I lived. So I had gone after his death and met a number of his friends and so kept in touch with these uh, uh, several of his people. And my brother was a real important, like, key figure in my life um, because of our childhood, too. So we had this a, a very unique bond because our, our childhood was challenging, and he was, like, my perspective. So if I would try to minimize what was happening, he was my person that would remind me of the crazy that we'd managed. And so... Anyway, he was gone very, very hard. And, um, but as the person I, I have often and still do refer to myself as an eternal optimist. And so I found what I could in that. And I continued on my, my path of, I went to school, like post-secondary education and, um, and I carried it on. And then, like I said, I kind of established myself and now fast forward from the time of his death, 18 years. So, 
this, um, my ex looked me up and he was no longer married. He had divorced the woman that uh, he was with at the time when I met him. They had been together many years, but he was no longer with her. And so this is where I didn't have any idea what love bombing was, but I did know that I had spent my life being really aware of red flags and warning signs and managed quite well to not get myself in situations that I didn't feel were supporting the life and lifestyle that I wanted. But then this happened. So he looked me up. Ironically, he contacted my parents, my dad and his wife, and they didn't give me the message. And then he tried again. And here's the irony is that I was really upset with them. <laughs> I was upset with them that they didn't give me the message uh, when he originally called. And now, oh, man, if I'd have known, I really wish they didn't give me the second message either. But here we go. So the, we met up, and the love bombing was immediate. And I didn't know what that is. But I, it was um, and mirroring. I didn't know. I didn't know what that was either. Like I, it was ever like in every direction. So he would say things to me like, "You're the female version of me. You've waited your whole life for me. The um, I've loved you." He said, "I love you really early." He also said, "I've always loved you." So then it it was very tied back to my brother, and um. So there on that with my brother, I had this underlying thought. I think growing up as a child, my brother was three years older than me. I kind of had this imagined thinking from when I was a little girl that I'd probably end up with my one of my brother's friends. We were really close. This was it just and it and in later, you know, it wasn't a logical thought. Then my brother is past. It never it was no longer a thing that could even be. And then he started talking about my brother bringing us together and that this was meant to be, and he was overseeing us. So this was very, like, this just got me right where my most vulnerable spots were. So that was part of the, and I didn't know what that was. I, I didn't know that was a thing and a tactic, essentially, that I realize now. And like other things too, I, um, I was really into yoga and at the time I was like on a raw vegan diet and I, and, and he told me that he did yoga and that he was on a raw vegan diet and I just bought it. I just thought that he was like, I just thought that this was who he was. I didn't know people would do things like mirroring and lie, like just saying what you want them to say to get what they want. And like, I didn't, I don't smoke pot. It's never been a thing. I grew up with, you know, my family is full of it and it's fine if people do, but I didn't want that in my life. And he just told me he didn't smoke pot. And that, now knowing what I know, he probably hadn't smoked pot that day, but I didn't realize that all of this was just this story that he was building. So that was the early days and it was, you know, lovely. And I thought I'd found, you know, I, I bought it. I bought the, you waited for me your whole life. This is amazing. We're meant to be. 
you know, I've always loved you. And then it was, it turned into, I love us. And it was this big thing. And then, well, I, well, I got pregnant and it was not the plan. I, as I'd mentioned, I wasn't planning to have children. And, um, and I'll talk more about this later in the story because it becomes relevant. But at the time I was, even though I wasn't planning to have children, as soon as I found out I was pregnant, I was really happy to be pregnant. I was fine with being pregnant. And it never was, I'm a strong, independent woman working with women. And I had been for a long time. Like I, I knew my choices and I knew them very well. And my choice was to have the baby. So uh, what, but what followed was not as pleasant. And so I was happy to be pregnant, but then I also had, I started, it actually was like probably two weeks before I found out I was pregnant was the first red flag that I can remember. And, um, but I didn't know it at the time. I just thought it was weird. And that was, it was my, my birthday was coming up and I had some wine, a couple of bottles of wine because I have a party. I was having friends over and he drank all the wine. One night he like, he got up and just drank it all. And in the morning, all the wine was gone. And I was like, that's super weird, buddy. Like that was my birthday wine. And he just said to me, I, I can't believe your reaction. And I'd never do that to you. So then of course I, by now I'm, I've already started question myself like oh am I overreacting but that just seemed so disrespectful I just well it it's a it's a it's amazing that in that one little statement he says um you're overreacting and I wouldn't do that to you <laughs> yet at the same time <laughs> he, he did do that to you and your response was correct so it's an interesting you know, uh, like words, not a word salad, but it's, it's, it's two meanings in one saying, you know, I would never do that to you, which reinforces to you that like he's on your side and in your team, but at the same time, he was just caught doing something, uh, that was wrong and that, uh, not let's say per se hurt you, but was disrespectful to you and what was going on. And then immediately after he says this one thing, it's all in a quick sentence and it confused you and it kind of, I'm going to assume, you know, just slid things under the rug. Cause at that point you're like, you're confused wondering, okay, uh uh-huh. And you, and you just kind of move on to, okay, let's just get ready for your birthday. I assume. Exactly. Yep. And we had the party. I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll just go get more wine. Like, okay. (laughs) It really was. And yeah, Mm -hmm. I think you summed up that nicely. And, and, you know, I had, I, probably had several people planning to come and yeah it was just very and and then what I noticed is right from that time he kind of shut down so it was like I felt like I'd been pointed out that I'd been wrong and then I don't know if he did right that instance but then what I later saw this pattern of is when I would bring something up something that didn't feel right then he would tell me that he would never do it to me, some version of that. And then he would shut down. 
And then he would use this as, um, well, if you would just be nice to me, then I would just do whatever. Like, I would be better. I, if you could just see that I, you just have to talk to me nicely. i just like, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, it was so, so challenging. And, um, and then, <clears throat> so shortly after that, I found after that instance that I talked about, then I found out I was pregnant. And with the pregnancy, so there was, the, okay, the choice to be pregnant. But then there was this complicating factor, which was, I'm living Canada and Canadian, and he was from the United States. So uh, I made the choice, or it was, I did. I, he, this is where I have a really hard time. And throughout all of it, I feel like I could have done things differently, and I wish I had at times. And uh, so I struggle with some regret, and then, try to remind myself in the moment I didn't realize that 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 I would regret it so much but so all that to say we'll put that aside and just say that he proposed to me and with the proposal I was quite I was very hesitant which later became a problem but the reason I was hesitant was by the time I knew I by the time I was I knew I was pregnant and I knew I started to feel like oh there might be some this might not be going as beautifully as the first few months was. And, um, and I was worried, but then I had this issue of him living in the States and um, in order for us to be a family, which I imagined. And I think, again, he knew this as I didn't, I had was there part of not wanting to have children is I didn't want to pass on what I had gone through. And I was very clear in my choices not to re re repeat the patterns of my childhood. And so that meant, ironically, now I see it very differently, but ironically at the time that meant I'll just do what I can to support this, the, the success of this relationship. And so he proposed and I hesitantly agreed. And, uh, you know, there was no ring. Again, another like in, in retrospect, the things I know, but, you know, because he had this story, but now I'd heard more about his story and what was going on. And he was kind of down on his luck and there was always this underlying and I knew him. So I had this history and also too, like I, I, when looking back, I realized I had this history. So I think part of that of knowing him, knowing the way I knew him through my brother, I think I, I let a lot of things go. And I knew him 18 years earlier when he was from the outside somewhat successful. Him and his wife were fine. I didn't know the insides of his life. And I had this admiration for him as a, a friend of my brother. And so I, I had seen him when I didn't know that, didn't necessarily see him as down on his luck. So I didn't think that he was just this kind of guy. Can I ask one question? What, what is down on his luck? What was going on? Yeah, so he had moved across the country, and there was a bit of a story where he had lived with his mom. So he'd left his wife, lived. I didn't get a lot of the details on what the grounds of that was. He'd left his, so he'd left his marriage, lived with his mom, and then there was something about a, you know, a, 
he his mom did a reverse mortgage and so and then the economy crashed oh that's what it was it was the u.s economy cut crash he was a registered massage therapist so he had gone to school and uh been a massage therapist so he was a registered massage therapist then the economy crashed his mom lost her house he lost most of his work and he told me at the time it was because of the economy crashing but I later found out that he lost his massage license due to being inappropriate with clients and a complaint. So he had lost his license. I didn't find this out until later. So he had moved across the country to, he had a sibling on the West Coast and um, of the United States. And so he moved to be closer to her. And then he just sort of never... It was just like, oh, for me, I can't get it. I can't get my business going again. And then at some point I found out about, well, it's because he lost his license. And then he was trying to get his license back in a different state. Um, yeah, so that was, uh, that was that. And I didn't know, like, over time I found out about Morse. Not only was he not really working, but he had debt that he later was pretty upset with me for not just taking on and, so that that answers my question. So back to back to immigration. Back to immigration. Okay, so so we plan immigration. So he comes into the country. So the quickest way to immigrate someone or the time anyway, you know, all these things change. But at the time, the quickest way was for him to come in the country and then not leave. So he comes in the country, we get married, and then he doesn't leave. Uh, because the other option is he stay in another country, and man, do I wish I chose that option. But anyway, can't change that now. So he stay out, we and then we do the the process. But at the time, we were told it would take longer that way. Even as it was with him coming in the country, us getting married, we thought that it would take two years. That was about the amount of time that it was going to take. And the interesting thing about this is that while he was in the country even though we were married and we had uh, applied and I paid the legal fees, I paid for a lawyer to do it. So significant amounts of money, probably $5,000. And I paid all this money, right? Cause he didn't have anything. So he wasn't allowed to work until he got his PR card. And so, but at this point there was still lots of love bombing. Don't worry. We got this. And I, my work was very, is very not conducive to small children. And, um, like I work on call, unusual hours. I just, and I knew that was part of my decision not to have children was that I couldn't continue to do what I do and be a good parent. And so I knew that if I ever had children, I'd need to stop working. And, um, and so he, this was part of the future faking, I guess, not so much love bombing. Now it's future faking. We're gonna, don't worry. Like, we're going to get through this, and then I will work. Once I can work, I'll work and support us, and then you can be home with the baby. And I have, like I said, I had this. I'd had enough financial security and made some good choices that I could get us through to that two years. I was like, no problem. I can do that. And um, not no problem. It was a bit stressful, but I can do that. So I we sorted it out, and I actually, in that, um, so we got married, and we decided to get married earlier than we had uh, originally thought, because the sooner we got married, the quicker the process would be. And so here's some irony for you, which I didn't even know. This You'll, you'll see how much not of a pot smoker I was. 
we got married on April 20th and I was like, Oh, that's so funny. Now I know. But anyway, so we got married and, uh, and, and things were still tricky and there was a lot. I knew there was, there was warning signs and, but I was still so committed to, um, to making it work. And then it wasn't long after we got married that things he stopped, like what little he was helping with, he stopped helping with. Like things like mowing the lawn and, you know, taking care of, or I'm working on call. I could be out at all hours. I, there wouldn't be any food prepared for me. Like I would have to come home and make food. It was just very, yeah, he just stopped. And then it was just, it's, Slowly, I don't know when in the process it started, but it was, um, it was, I, if I would ask, he would tell me that because I'm asking, he wants to do less. And I've come to learn that that's a common tactic of this, these kind of people. But so now we're married and I'm pregnant and he's not helping them things. It, I think in looking back, it, it happened pretty quick after that. Like, I'm not sure which, which, which of those was the, you know, the hook where I was, he was in and there was no change. And when the devaluing and stuff really started to happen, but it was somewhere really close to all of that. And then it was very strange things. Like I had a lot of women friends and like I mentioned the birthday cards, like I had lots of social, like not lots. It was very minor. It wasn't a party or to have friends over for dinner parties. I had a group, a, a core group of close friends were very, yeah, we've known most of my friends for a long time. And so I'm very affectionate between my friends, like lots of hugging. And so then things like my friend, I remember one instance I was at the, we were at the table, a friend came over. I think she was actually just finding out that, about the pregnancy and she brought over some Indian food and we're sitting at the table and her and my knees were touching each other at the table. And then later he told me that that I, it meant that I wanted to have sex with her or that we were having sex. And it was this, it started, I was so shocked. I had never, I, 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 I didn't understand how I could be being accused of having sex with a like it just didn't even register and so I had this deep commitment to now this man and this baby but I'm being accused of things that are unimaginable and not even wrong like if I wanted to have sex with a woman I could have like by this time I'm in my late 30s like I don't it was very very bizarre I couldn't make sense of it and um and that continued and um and then like it, into like I had a dear friend come from you know she lives far away and she came for my baby shower and she's a lesbian so oh that was the that was the next thing so then I had several friends who are lesbians and so then in my greater group of friends and so then he really attached on to oh this must mean that they want to have sex with you because they are lesbians it was just the strangest thing and um Oh yeah, this is something. So shortly after we were married, he started calling me baby wife. And I was like, what the heck? And then it started, it progressed into this. 
he was subtly telling me that I didn't know what, I, no, actually probably not so subtly baby wife. Now I hear baby wife. I'm like, that's not subtle at all. But at the time I didn't get it, but it was part of this, um, minimizing me or because he was telling me that, you know, cause I get upset about things or try to work through things. And he would just tell me, I didn't know I'm a baby wife. I've never done it before. And this is just how marriage is. And, you know, sometimes one, this is, was a theme throughout too. Like it's just how it is with marriage. Sometimes one partner works and uh, sometimes the other partner works. And I'm thinking, yeah, but I haven't seen you do any of the work. Like, and the more I asked and try to get you to be involved, it was just, uh, it was a very, very, I, and it was really isolating. So as my friends, some of them are solid and they're still my friends today, but this became very tricky and he was doing his body work on some of my clients and then he was slightly possibly inappropriate they didn't want to say anything it was messy and I became more and more isolated and I realized I um you know here I am pregnant I'm like okay I got this baby we got this but and then more and more I like I remember vividly I would take, I was taking a hot bath and I was, and I remember crying and thinking I've ruined my life. Like, and again, I blame my, like it was me. I had ruined my life. Like this was tragic and uh, not the baby, but the whole situation. And so me being who I, what, who I am, I was like, okay, we got I got to find a solution. I did find, um, I asked him to go to counseling with me. Sorry about bother you at this point. Bother you. Sorry to interrupt at this point. Um, so what month here are you going to couples therapy? Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure I was, uh, by the time we actually went, I was about, I was seven or eight months pregnant. So isn't it, I mean, for everyone who's listening, you know, they've, a lot of people probably have experienced the exact same thing. I mean, you had three good months. Yeah. And then uh, now you're in like the fourth month of it not being good. You're very trapped right here. And in month seven, you are already going to couples therapy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, are you sitting there thinking like, how do I leave? Or is that even in your mind because you can't see that you're trapped or you can't see that like I can you know, get off this or get out of here right now. Like this isn't working out, but those three months played such a big role in everything else before that, uh, that went into it from your uh, brother, uh, being vouched for everything like that. So is that even a thought process in your head? I need to get out of this or like I can work through this or I'm a, I'm a soldier. I can soldier on. (laughs) I think a bit closer to the soldier part, but also I, it was, very complicated by I had now sponsored him into the country so I'm financially obligated I'm, I'm obligated to support him financially for two years and like through that process plus two years actually so it's not even two years so I so if he ra- if he if he racked up two hundred thousand dollars in debt it's, it's on, on you me. it's on me yeah oh so I didn't see it at at the time I didn't see it as an option to, to, to end it. I really, I just didn't. I felt like I agreed to this and I'd, I'd agreed to our country. I'd like, you know, made these big applications. Like I, 
I just, I didn't see it. So I felt like, okay, counseling, like I got to find a way through it. I've got to find a way for this to be tolerable and to get through it. And I really, with my brother connection, because that still kept coming in. Oh, you know, he did this. He brought us together. Like there was a lot of that going on as hard as these things were and accusing me of being a lesbian. He's still telling me that my brother is who brought us together. Like it was absolutely like it was. Yeah. I have some terms for what my mind was going through, but yeah, I didn't, I don't think at this point I didn't, be an option of calling it quit because I I'd agreed to the I'd agreed to immigrate him I'd married him and I felt like it was this too I uh, now I look at it so different but I felt like it was my responsibility to this baby to have to help his dad come in the country and now I'm not if I, I I don't know it seems like such immature thinking like I just don't understand where that came from but I think it was this deep desire to do what's right and I just felt like that was right and i once i'd made it's it's yeah sorry it's not immature thinking at all it's you know i'm sure 99 percent of uh everyone who's going through that will have the exact same thought process as you did which is you know you want to have the the dad in the life and you i guess you are only at the you know month seven and four months of bad behavior you really don't know how bad it's going to get you can't perceive yeah how uh, bad it is yeah. so it's not immature thinking i just want you to, to know that and i apologize uh, for interrupting oh that's okay it's that's fine as as you will it's your show it's all good so i um so we did find a counselor and so this i find this there's a lot of things in the story that i think man that was so telling if i could have just heard it more clearly when he said it i could have done something different but I couldn't hear it so what he said is my my first or my my wife my actually I was the third wife but anyway so that his last wife the one I knew would never go to counseling because and what she told him was that she didn't want to go because they would just tell her to leave him (laughs) and oh how I wish I could have really heard that but I couldn't so we went, we found a counselor and the same, oh, get there. So this guy is trained in nonviolent communication. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, there's nothing nonviolent about this man's communication. Passive aggressive communication is so violent, oh, as I know, a decade later. But anyway, this woman was trained. So we found someone I'm paying out of pocket, right? I'm self-employed. I'm paying for this, but I'm so committed to try and find a solution because I felt like I've ruined my life. And so I want to find a way to unruin my life. And so we went to her and the first session was great. And then the second session, which, uh, you know, if we had uh, going forward, we ended up having four counselors in the duration of our, our time together. And they all ultimately came to the same place. What came to the same place is that she, she was the first one though. And so she aligned with what I had been saying to him. And so the first session was great. He was happy to come back. It was really good. The second session, he, she started to say things, literally said things that I had said because I'm actually really not unreasonable. I've actually had a lot of a life. I've done a lot of my own work. I've done a lot of 
counseling through the years, like I'm actually pretty, I'm pretty established in, in life. I'm like, <laughs> so she starts saying similar things that I'm saying and we leave. And he tells me that the only reason she said those things is because she wants to have sex with me. And I, I really, it was, it was really, I I really don't know how, I I couldn't comprehend what had just happened. It was the most, so here now I'm like being accused of having, wanting to have sex with my friends, but he's now telling me that the counselor wants, and I sat across the room with this woman. I never had any physical contact. There was nothing. Any, I mean, this is a professional. I mean, it was just the most baffling. And really, in that moment, I really just felt it all. I was like, I am so screwed. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm due to have a baby in a couple months. Like, so that, I'm pretty sure that was October. And I, the baby was due. And I, at the end of November, I ended up having him in December. But I really, I just, it's when I put everything aside. I, I, I don't even really know what I I just had to go on overdrive and uh deal with like I just had to have a baby and I knew that I needed to not bring up more because I needed to successfully have a healthy baby and a healthy birth and um so I just put it all aside and the other thing that's significant really is during this whole time is that he was there he talked all about his parental instincts and about how he they were so established and that everything was about this baby and you know he, he just he just has to be here for this baby and so and he was very you know I've talked about a lot of the things that were hard with him with me in the pregnancy but he did um like he would give me <laughs> this kind of makes my skin crawl now but he'd give me treatment in the pregnancy like he did cranial sacral treatments and he which helped the nauseousness like he was very attentive but now I see that that was about the baby because I was carrying his now what I realized his you know the extension of himself that his property essentially so I just shelved it and um and we did uh we went on, like I had a great, oh, this is, a, <laughs> this is another thing. Oh, this is interesting. So um, uh, in there too, we're moving. I sold one of my houses. We're moving to my other house. Like it was a big, kind of huge change. You know, when they say those stressors of things that happened, I had, you know, all but one. And I think that one was death and that had happened 18 years earlier. Like it really was a lot of upheaval, but it was all, also coded in this, you know, you've waited about your whole life for me. This is so brilliant. This is going to go well. So there's a lot. And part of that was, so I told you, I didn't want to have children. And he, while I was pregnant, he's talking about another baby. And I'm like, hold on a minute, buddy. Like, I'm already feeling like I've ruined my life. This guy, there's lots of, like, this is not pleasant. A lot of it's not pleasant, but I'm trying to believe that those little glimmers of hope are going to be real, that it's really, we're going to get through this. This is just like, whatever, growing pains, newness, changes, whatever that is. And that, but we can persevere because we've got this great connection. My brother's got us together, you know, like that. But I was just like, let's have, and so I just, 
told him, like, let's just have this baby. Like, I'm not ready to talk about another baby. And things like he told me I could name this baby because he has an older daughter, much older, like 25 years older than this um, our child. And uh, so he told me I could name the baby. So these are little things that later became significant because so a, um, the baby was born and there's this gorgeous, lovely birth and, um, and that was sweet and lovely. And the moment the baby was born, he wanted to know the baby's name because he, now I realized he had a name that he wanted to name the baby, but he told me I could name the baby, but then I never came up with a name quite yet. And I really wanted to just meet the baby get to know who the baby was and find a name, but it was instant pressure. And I just to shut him. I, I think just to shut him up. I was like, okay. Cause I never found a, another name, a better name. And it seems so little, but it's not little. It, it was another indication of this, this illusion that I was part of it and an illusion that we were in this together but there was very little together. So ultimately I just said, okay, we can name the baby that because I, I, I wanted him to stop asking me and, um, and just enough. Like I just wanted to enjoy having just had this beautiful baby. And, um, and then another little warning side. So we had had a, had had a home birth. Um, so, and, uh, and I was really, so, okay. So I didn't know if I would tell, tell the world my profession, but I, I was, a, I'm a midwife and I had been a midwife for 10 years. So there was a lot about this birth that was important to me. And I, I really, uh, this might sound super weird, but it was almost like, it was like my, it was like my, all my beliefs and philosophies and aspirations as a midwife had really come to fruition in this birth. Like I really, there was, so for me as a person, it was such an amazing accomplishment in a very strange way. Cause I had, I had never planned to have this baby. And then here he was, and it was the perfect birth. Like it was, and I, I knew that that was whatever perfect means. Every birth is perfect, but for my world. And I knew that I had so much, going against me and then here was this incredible so it was so interesting that I had accomplished something that felt so magnificent at the same time as dealing with all of this other stuff that was so hard so we had uh we were in a really remote place and we had a home birth it was very very um I felt very protective of this little cocoon for this baby and this man insisted that he hire a mas- well, I hire because I'm paying for everything, that uh, I hi- pay for him to get a massage, and he refused to go out of the house to go get it. We're in this, like, open little cabin, open space. There's not even a door to the bedroom, and he insisted this person come there not and not to massage me, but to massage him because the birth was so hard for him. And I, so that was like a day three. And I was, again, it was another like, Oh, oh I'm in trouble. Like this is so clearly a problem. 
But I, here I, there I am. I have this baby. I'm extremely vulnerable and just trying to cope with it all. So, um, so then this baby, beautiful birth, it's all lovely. And then four months later, after the baby's born, he, we get the call that he gets his PR card. And I'm like, okay, things are going to turn around. Like I kept holding out hope that this, you know, illusion of the future was true and that it was going to be okay. Cause there'd be these beautiful, there was so much beauty in what was happening. And then there would be these very hard things that I was trying to make sense of. Like I, I just couldn't understand. Like I did like the whole thing with the massage. I don't understand. I could not understand why he would not leave the house to go get a massage. He's still getting his massage, but he just let it. It was about him and he didn't want to have to go. And so he shouldn't have to go. And so he was going to bring them here. And so four months, the baby's four months old and he gets his PR card and I'm like, okay, here we go. Now we're going to have a shift. And he got his PR card at a year. So I remember I told you that like, we thought the estimation was two years. And I was like, okay, there's hope. It's that we don't have to wait two years for this to shift and change. And he got his PR card and he didn't get a job. And then it was a whole other level of knowing that I was in big trouble. So because then all these, the future faking stuff was just, it was clear that it was all, it wasn't true. It was all on some level. I was like, I was, I, I think I sort of real, I was having real layers of realization that this was, this problem was really big. And, um, but again, it's all wrapped up in my brother. Now I have this beautiful baby. It was just, oh, it was tricky. Oh, and <laughs> just on the theme too of like, so I took, this really helped me um, realize at that, that I really did take action throughout to make a difference in my life. And, uh, but I couldn't see it at the time. Like I felt complete, I felt incredibly trapped and like at this so I, it was right around this time after the PR card that I realized, like I started, so it's kind of like in the pregnancy when I started thinking and having this repeating thought, I've ruined my life. Then it, my repeating thought shifted to, I successfully avoided this my whole life. And now I'm here. Like, how did this happen? And I really, I was very hard on myself. I got quite depressed. And, um, and you know, lots of people, oh, it must be postpartum depression. No, I, like I said, I, it, it was circumstantial depression and I knew it and I knew it wasn't postpartum depression. I, like I said, I'd been in my, <laughs> in my line of work for over 10 years by this point already. And so I did, I did find another counselor for me. And, um, and another step that I took action to, too, is that, because remember, he was saying that he wanted another baby before I'd even had this one. And I, as soon as I could, which was right around the same time, because it, it's not till about three months after you've had a baby, I went and got an IUD. Not that everybody needs to know about my birth control choices, but I had literally successfully avoided pregnancy my whole life, and I had no intentions of having this baby and I ended up with one. So I was going to take very firm action not to have that other baby that he had talked about. Like I was just, so I did that. 
And I found a counselor. And here's another little nugget that looking back, oh, man, like I still, like you asked before, was I thinking of escaping? So even after all this stuff that I've told you and I'm realizing I have like avoided this my whole life and I can't believe this is my life, I am still not realizing that I can leave. I went to this counselor and she said to me, you made the choice to marry him. And that was the right, that was probably the right choice for you at the time. And now you can make a different choice. And I left her office and I was shocked. I was like, I, (laughs) and now I laugh because it's crazy to me to think I couldn't hear her. I couldn't hear because I went to her to get help on how to deal with my situation. I didn't go to ask to get someone to tell me to divorce him. Like I, I, and now I just, it's so stunning to me that I, I couldn't hear it. Like I was kind of offended by her. Like, why would she say that to me? And now, man, if I... Well, I I have a question for you. (laughs) Going back to that therapist and you, is there something the therapist could have said before that to ease you eventually into that so you would hear her? Is there something for... If if therapists are listening to this this episode, what, what is something you would have listened to instead of saying leave, like... How could that therapist yeah. have gotten you on their side? Yeah, you know what I think? It's interesting you say that because actually in, prepara- in preparing for this, even talking with you, I thought I've been thinking about that. And I think what happened is it was so abrupt. I didn't have a significant and established relationship with her. Like, I don't know if it was, if I saw her once or twice, like I hadn't seen her much. And I think it was just too jarring of, of a statement at the time. Like, I think I didn't know her well enough. I felt like she didn't know me well enough. And the truth is she probably could see right through, like, because ultimately it was very good advice. But um, I think it was just too sudden and abrupt. I just couldn't hear it. Yeah. So for the therapists who are listening to this, before you even go into that spiel, make sure that you have a trust level built with the client who's coming in. So when you do... Uh, make this type of recommendation or advice, they will uh, listen to you. That would be, I guess, the, the lesson here. Yeah, I think I think that's yeah quite accurate because it was. I mean, now knowing what I know, it was good advice, and it was. But I was still, I was still too caught by all of the abuse of the relationship. Like I still was too, I was still too deeply enmeshed in the relationship to be able to if your therapist um said to you here's this stuff on narcissism and narcissistic abuse go read this yeah that have made a difference well yes and fast forward to the next therapist that did happen and that is the first time i heard about a narcissist and then life really did change And yeah, and what is interesting about this therapist, and I think it's also part of the abuse cycle that I was in, is that I'm pretty sure she was a lesbian. And I think that didn't help the situation. I think it, I had been so, um, I don't know if brainwashed is the right, but I was so twisted in my thinking with him that I probably used that against her like I probably was like no she doesn't know she you know she probably hates men like I really 
most embarrassing to even say that. Oh, my God. So, And I don't even know. I mean, that's me trying to dissect why I couldn't hear her. And I, I like I had said previously, I have lots of friends. Like, that uh, uh, gender, like, <laughs> life choices like that are not an issue for me in my life. But I'm trying to make sense of why I couldn't hear her. But anyway, so I didn't. For whatever combination of reasons where I was at, I didn't hear her. And then, but I also, so I, and I had this really, like, I really just wanted to make it work. I was still so committed to making it work. I mean, my baby's young. He's only four or five months, six months old at this time. Like, I felt like I hadn't given it enough of a shot. Like, they were not that far in. And I just, I've got, I just, it didn't occur to me to give up at this point. But so I had that whole line of things. But I also was doing things like, trying to not have another baby, going to a counselor. And then I consulted a lawyer and the, not even because I wanted to leave. I think I just wanted to know what I was in for, if that is where it was headed. Cause on some level, clearly I knew that it was um, not going, you know, things were not getting better. I was, despite all the efforts to try and, and get things worked out. So, so, um, and the lawyer gave me really great advice, and that was at the time our fam- uh, um, family law was about to change, and essentially the lawyer said, don't make any decisions before that change in law happens, because then you will be projected. Um, the lawyer also was, I think it might have been the first time I was told, write everything down, and um, that is extremely important advice. I wrote everything down for years and years and years. Um, so, and then another actions that I took, I, um, so during this time, I, what I didn't mention is that not only was he not working, but he had a drinking habit and he wanted to drink, like he would drink daily and he'd want to go out and eat in restaurants and he liked eating out. It was fun. It was lovely. And he, and again, this thing of, Early on, I told you that first time, it was probably the first red flag. So we'd go out, we'd eat, and I really I was like, we can't live like this. I can't afford it. And he's like, I, I would never do that to you. I'd never tell you we couldn't do this. Like, what do you mean? But I remember I'd sold this house, and so I, but I was, like, using the money that was in the house, from the house to, like, load us through, but... I think to him, he just was like, huh, I don't ever have to work now because we got all this money. And I was like, oh, my word. So then what I did was I decided I didn't want to buy a house, but I bought, I found a house to buy. Like, I was like, because I had to put the money somewhere or it was going to be gone because he just wanted to, you know, have this, you know, living luxuriously. And I was just like, no. And and I like by this time he's now legally allowed to work and he's not working, and um, and I'm just like begging him to work and and then and I start um, I started like buying him jobs. This was like getting him retrained in this, getting him retrained for a lifeguard. Which then he like it was a lot of self sabotage. Oh, they won't hire me because it's nepotism. It was there was always some reason that it wasn't his fault for not having a job. And then I was like, I just get a job to do anything. He's like, why would I go get a job doing anything for minimum wage and be away from the, from the baby? 
I don't want to be away from the baby. So then that whole, you know, don't worry, I bought us once we get through was gone, clearly. And then I, I also bought, I made a huge investment. So there's this, because, you know, he had this cranial sacral therapy stuff he was doing. And, um, and so he would have some clients, but he never really advertised. It didn't really go very far. And, and then, uh, so there's a um, colon hydrotherapy unit, and I bought it. It was super expensive. I don't know. It was like, I don't know how much it was, like $12,000. I think I had thought it was 20, but I think it was maybe around 12. Anyway, I bought the unit. I plumbed it into the house, into my sofa into the house so he could have clients. Again, he didn't really advertise. He didn't really make a lot. He just sort of had some clients and would do trades. And and he just, and I was just like, come on, please. Like, oh, I need you to, like, work. And he's just like, well, it can't be that bad because you haven't gone back to work. And uh, and then also through this time, there was a lot of the devaluation really continued to with uh, my family and the isolation. And he'd start talking to my friends and family about me and how he wasn't really into me. And and like my trying to convince one of my one of my longtime girlfriends drove with him. They had like a three hour drive because she was coming for a visit and. And um, he spent, apparently he spent the whole, well, she told me, not just apparently, she told me he spent the whole drive trying to tell her that she didn't know who I was, that he knew who I was, that no one else really knew who the real, you know, the real Leah was. And, but, and she was like, uh, hold on a minute. I've known her for, you know, whatever at the time, I don't know, 15 years. She's not a lesbian and you're not going to convince me she is. There's no reason. <laughs> oh, it was just uh, strange strange times and um so very hard and um it just continued that way for uh you know quite a while it seems like a little uh, quite a long time but it wasn't in effect it wasn't really that long um because by about uh, you know this kind of this this uh this smear campaign continued like he was really um he was really telling everybody he could about how terrible I was. And um, did you know the smear campaign was going on while it was going on? Did your friends or family tell you? Um, only some of them like that friend did. And did you um, confront him about it? Um, yeah. Oh yeah. And he would. Um, and I, and then if I got, yeah, I did a few times. I tried, I tried. Here's what try and then of course he would um just tell me that i you know he knew the truth and that i was a liar and it's not true and then i would it would get point to uh you know a, a big outburst and i'd be screaming i'm like well then get the fuck out dude like if it's that bad leave but he wouldn't and then he turned that around then he started telling people like that probably happened like maybe there were maybe like five outbursts of rage and I've since learned it's reactive abuse. Like, I, I'm not a rageful person, like, <laughs> but I, I really was like, it's under such terrible conditions. And then he would, that added to his smear campaign. He would tell people that I was, you know, a rage, like I was, 
I had rage issues and that I was meant, then it started like mentally unstable, you know, like that, that I've got bipolar, you know, he had all his like, yeah, it, it, so I knew some of it, but I didn't really, I didn't know all of it. And some of my friends were like, why is he just like, why do you let him do what he's doing? I'm like, how do I let him? The guy is like playing his guitar for six hours a day and meditating and he won't work. Like, I don't know how to make him. And the more I try to encourage him, the less he would do. Then he'd blame me for not being nice. And if I was just nice and do more, like, I just, <laughs> ah, it was this terrible. So I didn't really know to the extent, although my family relationships were already, like I'd mentioned, my family life wasn't great anyway. So that wasn't a big surprise that that had, um, he had managed to really erode that away. And, oh, here's the example. So here's uh, an interesting point where I'd said with the mirroring stuff where he had said he doesn't smoke pot. Well, it turns out he does and he does it. There's a daily thing for him, like the drinking was daily and so was pot and I didn't know it. And so in this whole trying to survive the situation, I was like, okay, so my bottom line is don't smoke pot with my dad. My dad's like, I grew up with pot plants in the closet. Like, I just didn't want it. I didn't want that for me and my child. So no surprise to your listeners that that didn't happen. And so he started smoking pot with my dad and then, and then really broke down that relationship. And my dad at some point said, I feel like you blame me for your divorce. I'm just like, this is batshit crazy. Like, how can this even be happening like there was just and it just got turned on me well you don't understand why this is my ex-husband now like you don't understand it's just so hard for me and you know anyway so this went on for a while and my son so that probably so that uh another um another year there was probably about a year of like buying buying him jobs trying to get him to go Oh, it was more than that because he got his PR card in April and it was the following, it was by the following October and I, by then I had made my first, like I felt like this was, this was the true beginning of the end and that was, I went on a vacation with my son and I didn't pay for his ticket and I was like, you can come because we're still, you know, we're theoretically working on this. Well, I say theoretically at the time I was deeply committed to working on it, but, um, I said, you know, you can come, but I'm not buying your ticket. And I think it's the first time that I really was like, I put down, like, I'm, uh, this is my, this is it. This is my, no way. I'm not saying no to you, but I'm saying no to how you're treating me. And this is enough already. Like we're, what are we three years into him? Absolutely. Like I felt like I was a shadow of myself by now but anyway I found the strength to say listen you can come but I'm not paying for your ticket and so my son and I went on this fabulous vacation we went to Hawaii it was so good I'd been there before and uh, you know I I used to think snobby rich people go to Hawaii for vacations and then I went and I was like huh, smart snobby rich people go to Hawaii for vacations but anyway I went we had this beautiful time and um and I, and every day he'd call me and he was super depressed and like, it was miserable. Like the worst part of the trip was the phone call I had to have with him every day. And I got, and I was so happy away 
And it was the start of when I realized when I was away, I was happy again. And that was hard because I came, well, and I, I don't know if I, I didn't notice it at the time because it was very hard. As much fun as I was having, it was also this very hard that I had this like dead weight at the other end of the phone. But I was having this glimpse of the joy in life again. And so I got, I got back and, um, and he, and I was like really sad to be home. Like I realized, oh, I didn't want to be back. And, you know, some of that could be from a vacation, but I later realized, you know, over time I realized, oh, it was because I was away and sometimes he'd go away and I'd be so much happier when he was gone. So I started to see that, but that Hawaii trip was when it made it so blatantly clear, like, oh, I, I'm much better. We are much better when he's not around. But anyway, so then I started right around this time, I started to see funny looks. Like you asked if I knew what was going on. I knew a little bit what was going on, but I didn't know a lot. Like I'd lost several friends, some in dramatic ways with him accusing them of being lesbian, like my secret lovers or being in love with me or whatever versions of that. So there was some of that. But then I started, we lived in a small town. We'd moved to a pretty small town um, before my son was born. And so I started to see funny look like and then I was like I just being paranoid like what the heck but I felt like people were looking at me funny <laughs> and I, I just I didn't know for a while but now looking back is I know that I think I don't know again this is about me to about to own his behavior which is so infuriating that I even still do it but I was gonna say I that me leaving to Hawaii was like, it was like it gave him permission to be even more inappropriate. But I think he already was all along anyway. But then what happened is he had inappropriate sexual relations with a client in our home office. So again, I told you how he had told me his victim story about how poor him and he lost his license and it was a misunderstanding. And then another little tidbit of information that I didn't tell you is that my sister... So I have one of the one of my dad's older kids. So I have this other half sibling, and she works in a law firm, and she'd done a little background check on him, and she told me that he lost his license. But by then, he had already told me the story of that, you know, and made it okay, and that he was a victim, and it wasn't him. And so um, that the Christmas, this is significant. The Christmas after I went away to Hawaii with our son. We spent Christmas with this um, woman and her husband and some other community members. And by this time, my ex was involved in this, you know, community. It was kind of a spiritually new age community. I didn't have much to do with it. I was mostly, you know, with my son. And um, and by this time, I actually, uh, through some unusual circumstances, the local midwife needed to stop working. And so I suddenly was working, and I it was just to get get her through. And I realized by this time, my ex was not going to likely do any supporting of us. And so I, I started to work a little bit, like just to see if I could manage it with my son. And uh, so anyway, at the Christmas, uh, we were at their place for Christmas, then it's like January, February. And another friend had got, was going away and my ex went to house sit for them. And again, I was like, Oh, it's such a relief to have him out of the house. But, and he had started around this time, started to say, uh, he didn't know if he wanted to be married. 
And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. And, um, and then it was about February. And, um, and oh, you know what? I'm going to go back a little bit. One other, I mentioned that I, we have several points we went uh, to counseling. So we had another bit of counseling before this time. And it was, uh, it was actually a doctor who was doing his training in Gottman therapy. And so we went to this Gottman counselor and, um, and we went and at one of our sessions, we actually went for quite a few sessions. He managed a few more that time. And, um, but at one of the sessions, I had quite an emotional response to something he was talking about. And again, this man started talking, like saying things that I said, which I had said before, like that kept happening. We'd go to these counselors. They'd say things that were similar to what I was saying because what I was asking for was not unreasonable. <laughs> anyway, so I had this. Um, this is one of the little gems that I've, I've reflected back on that's really helped me. Again, I wish I would have really been able to take it on right when it was said. But this guy, um, so I had this emotional reaction. We're working through something in his office. I have this reaction, and my ex says, see, that's what she does. She's got, um, you know, rage issues, whatever. And the, uh, the guy, the counselor is like, that is a normal emotional response. It's called flooding. It's a normal response to a stressful situation. And that was my glimmer of hope. Like at the time I heard it, but I didn't really take it on to the extent I really now, knowing what I know, I wish I had. Like essentially that man told me in that one statement that hit all of this. Because I was, it was the same reaction, the same one where I said, where I got to the point where I told him to get the fuck out of the house. That was the same level of reaction that I had then, and now I've demonstrated it in the presence of this counselor, and this counselor is confirming that this is normal. This is a stressful situation, and I'm not the rager, crazy, batshit, crazy person that he's trying to make it out to be and telling everybody that I am. So that was a little gem that I uh, held on to. So now fast forward to so. We, uh, in the, I think January, February, he's out of the house. He's saying he's not sure if he wants to be married. He's staying at our friend's place. And then I get a call from him while he's there. And he tells me about this, having this sexual inappropriate relationship with a client. And he makes it about him. I didn't tell you sooner because... I didn't know if the husband was going to kill me, you know, makes it this big story. But what really ultimately came out is that he told me because this community that he was talking about told him that if he didn't tell me, they were going to tell me. So now I knew what the funny looks around town were. People knew what was going on and I didn't know. And I, so that happened and he, so It was very intense time, and even still, I can't even believe it, but I agreed to keep working on things, even through this. Like, I was just so dedicated to the possibility that there was, he was truly, you know, able to get, I didn't, anyway, I still had some hope. And he wanted, he he asked me, (laughs) he asked me to work on it for a year, and I was like, oh, that's, that's too long. Let's. Let's say six months. We'll do some counseling for six months. Try again yet again. Like, 
here we are. We're four counselors later, I think, at this point. This will be the fourth, I think. Anyway. So, um, so, so, so you're at this point of your relationship where you don't trust him in almost every way. You're, you're done in a lot of ways, but you're still trying. Yeah. So there's obviously this push and pull that is going uh, on inside of you. So oh, what yeah. is like your daily dialogue to yourself? Uh, are you beating yourself up part of the day and then trying to champion yourself the rest of the day to get through the day? Are mm-hmm. you living minute by minute, you know, second mm-hmm. by second? Mm-hmm. Are you, are, is, it, is it too difficult to look forward in the future? Or is it the hope of the future that is carrying you through, mm-hmm. hoping that the next day will be what you dreamed of? Mm-hmm. I think it's a combination of the last, like this hope. I still have this future faking hope was still somehow there. And I, he, a combination of him telling me so and me just deeply believing it, I thought it was my fault. I really was living like I, like that repeated message that I had in my head, I've ruined my life. Like I felt like I ruined my life, so I have to fix my life. And I'm not sure how I couldn't just realize in that moment, although we're getting quite close to the moment where I realized it, that it just needed to stop. Like, it, no I, one, of, oh, Sorry, I have one question. Yeah. Um, and I apologize for interrupting and anyone who wanted to hear what you were about to say. Um, <laughs> but did you ever mention to a therapist those exact words of, you know, I ruined my life? Like, did you ever say that, like, out loud to them? And if you did, what was their response? Mm-hmm. I think um, I think the next counselor that I went to, I think that's when it came out. And that's the counselor that told me, that first mentioned narcissistic abuse. So I think, yeah, but I, it wasn't, it wasn't for a bit. Like, we got another, we got another six months, um, maybe five months more of this, like, this ongoing cycle. And, you know, and the future faking another really significant piece of this. There were things like, so as hard and tumult, so much turmoil that was going on, like I love my son and I love being a mom. And I, like, right, I didn't know that I, I'd never even let it be a possibility. And then that whole part of my life turned out super great. Like I love being a mom. And so then at some point I was like, and remember, he had been telling me, like, talking about the second baby before we even had the first. And I, like, made efforts, significant efforts to make that not happen. And then at some point it turned. And I don't, I mean, I'm not, it was at about, my son wasn't, um, I don't think he was quite a year. Uh, I don't think he was quite a year yet. So this is, like, out of sequence of the timing we're talking about. But I think he was about, he was probably about here maybe. And I said, okay, I'd like to have another baby. And then he, and then he said, no. And, you know, so that was so challenging. And, and like when you, like I still was hold somehow I was still, even in that, I was still holding out that this future fake, but even though now looking back, I had all the evidence to show that none of the future faking was ever going to, none of the future that he talked about was ever going to happen. But I, I still was holding out that somehow 
And I've done a lot of things. Like, I've accomplished a lot of things. I think I still was thinking that I could, not realizing the extent to which this man was, or the situation was. So, uh, yeah, that was rough. Anyway, I got a little off track there. But so when he told me back to this, telling me now have this relationship inappropriateness with the client, and he's going on. This is when I'm starting to get my strength, right? So I wish I could say it happened. Well, anyway, whatever. So he says this, and he's talking about how amazing and, and supportive this community is, and he can't believe it. They've just really rallied around him, and they want to help him again. <laughs> and at some point, I said, well, this community is so amazing, but I'm at home with our child. Like, if it's so amazing, why am I isolated and alone with a small child? So he took that back to the community, and then somebody called me, a woman called me, and um, said, you know, I understand that you are feeling like you'd like some support, and this is a hard time. And in this conversation, this is where it gets pretty tricky. We'll see how I can manage talking through all this. And um, for your listeners, might be some. <laughs> anyway, so I say, um, she says to me, um, in this conversation, she starts referring to my husband raping someone. And I was not prepared for that. Uh, I mean, a lot of this, none of this I was prepared for. But so she says that I'm like, hold on a minute. What? Like, at this point, all I'd heard is that he'd been, you know, there'd been something sexual between them. Like, I, I, it was all very vague and cryptic. And this woman, who I'm thinking is calling to support me, starts talking about my husband raping someone. And I was like, oh, oh, wait, like, what are you talking about? And she says, well, what else do you call non-consensual sex? And I was just stunned. And this is where... Again, on some level, I'm taking huge actions, and on other levels, I'm still wrapped up in it. But I got off that call, and I called the woman that she was referring to, that he'd had this sexually inappropriate relationship. I called her right away. I was like, if my husband has raped somebody, this needs to be managed. Like, she needs help, and this needs to be addressed. And so... I called her, and she, it was hard. I mean, clearly, she was in the midst of uncovering all of this, and she kept saying things to me like, I've never been unfaithful to my husband. Like I, so I could, I, I, I was able to extrapolate that, you know, he hadn't forcefully raped her, but essentially what I now realize is that he had engaged in sexual activity with her without her consent. And so, and that can look really subtle and then we're going back to how he lost uh, it subtle to start not realize then we're going back that we know that he lost his license for an accusation and I'm like oh my gosh and then I don't actually know at what point it wasn't for quite a while later actually I can tell you it was I realized how the um, initial love bombing stage of our relationship was actually covering up him um, 
this is the part that's pretty hard to talk about, and I don't know how to do it gracefully, but I'll do my best, is that um, so when him and I first got together, it was we were old friends, and um, he offered to give me a massage, and I he did give me a massage, and then I was like, face down on the massage table, and then the next thing I know, he's having sex with me. And I, at the time, you know, looking back, I feel like I, as a strong woman, could have said no. I could have yelled and screamed and said no. Like, what the hell? I didn't agree to this. But I didn't, I didn't know that he was this whole story of love bombing that he did immediately. I now see that he was having to cover up his tracks for this non... I mean, it became a consensual mutual situation, but it wasn't that to start with. And um, so very challenging. So then he immediately, like he had to, now I see that he had two options. If he didn't do the love bombing and doing all the future faking and all the stories about, then he knew I was going to realize, holy shit, I just got taken advantage of. And, um, and if we didn't have that background and we didn't have that history and we didn't have the, oh, my brother brought us together, I very likely would have come to that realization a whole lot sooner. So then I find it very significant that he then, you know, fast forward into our marriage, he's telling, then he's telling people he's not into me. He doesn't really like my body. He's not really that attracted to me. Meanwhile, I wasn't involved in that very initial, um, I mean, I was involved, but I wasn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't a mutual decision where we chose it. Like he, he took action and then I was, I just went along with it thinking that this was, you know, I believed I'd waited my whole life. And so very, very, so, but I think it was in this woman saying, you know, your husband raped someone, this woman saying, I've never had, I've never cheated on my husband. I was unable to realize, holy shit, that is likely what happened to me. And I didn't know it. I didn't see it. And I'm not like, I wasn't looked, I just wasn't, I just wasn't prepared for seeing that. And, um, and then, you know, it's also very significant because at some point he started telling me that I intentionally got pregnant, that I did this to him. And meanwhile, like then looking back, I'm like, hold on a minute. That was unprotected sex. And I didn't even know it was about to happen. So how does that work? So, you know, it's so complicated and, um, yeah. So I'd like to say that that's when I walked away, but I didn't, I agreed to, um, I agreed to counseling and, um, and we had a counselor. (laughs) Oh, the irony is the counselor was, you know, kind of the head of this like community that he was part of, that he was so proud of. And this guy started seeing each of us separately and then we'd see us together and, you know, there were some pretty clear boundaries put in place. Like, I was like, you can't see female clients in this office anymore. Like, and that was with the help of this community. So I, I had this idea that there was some supports and there was structure, and it was like he was going to get help. Like, and he seemed somewhat remorseful, even though he was still now looking back on it. He's still like, oh, I thought the husband would kill me. It was still very victim, blame, you know, stuff. But. I, I still held out hope that, okay, well, he's 
but then it wasn't too long before he was he was still seeing female clients and and he was and I was just like okay now this this has to stop and um and then I it was I think it was about five months into seeing this counselor and he was breaking the agreement. He was starting to work. It was the first time in our marriage that he started to work and make some more money, but he would spend the money like on a trip to go see his mom and he didn't spend the money on contributing to the family. So it was less of a burden on me. So that, I mean, and at the time I think I just thought, okay, well that's good. He's at least contributing. He's less, less, responsibility for me but then I, it was about five months into the, the the counseling stuff and he started to say I don't think I want to be married and then when I heard it again I was like okay done and then he um I, and I was totally done like I, I was done way back when like we hadn't been intimate since I found out about this whole thing and I was given it, still giving it a shot, but I really need, by now I was like, I really need to see that this guy is going to make changes and I couldn't live like, you know, and I, I had my own practice in the same place, like in the downstairs of our house, like, oh, it was so, and it was like every part of my life was infiltrated by this guy. It was so challenging. So I, um. That so he is like okay I don't think I want to be buried anymore or it's just some some version of that and I just said okay we're done I'm done I'm not doing this anymore and by this time I think or maybe it was right it might have been right then that I went to see that other counselor and the plan was because oh here's the thing that counselor that we were seeing together turns out he had been a pastor and he had had an affair with his secretary I'm like how much more plastic can we be like I was just like really so that ended because he wasn't doing like my ex wasn't following the rules anyway and then so we found another counselor and the plan was that this counselor was going to see each of us separately and then we would see her together and then so that part the separate part happened but we never got to the point because by the time before we ever got to the point of seeing her together he had started this I don't know if I want to be married. And then I'm, uh, this is the, the first person who had mentioned narcissistic personality disorder to me. And, um, and so then that's when I, and I, I, I started, like I had those glimmers, like looking back, there were times all throughout that I was making, taking action to get out. But even though, even while not realizing I was doing that, like I was, still holding on to some bit of dignity, trying to find my way while trying to, um, trying to keep this life going, this lie that I thought was possible. And so he, it got really, it got a lot harder. I wish I could say it got easier, but it got harder and um, he refused. So we had, at this point, I still had my, I had two houses, right? Cause I'd mentioned we'd lived in this cabin and then I bought a second house by so by this time we had moved when my son was about six months old is when I bought that second house and so we moved there as a family and then we were there the whole time um and I'd rented out the cabin and um so that was essentially the income that we had anyway so he said he doesn't want to be married but he didn't want to move out and he refused to move out I'm like uh buddy like enough we're done 
you're done. You don't want to be married. We've given this a shot. And he was like, no, I'm not moving out. And uh, that was pretty baffling. And I'm still, you know, paying all the bills. His money is just going to his extras. And I'm paying for everything. And I, it was so, uh, my tenant, the tenant in the cabin uh, gave notice. And I, and, and my ex wouldn't move out. And so I did. I, I moved. I, um, I moved into the cabin. And then <laughs> it's a little cabin with wood heat and I'm chopping wood and my son is like two and a half and, you know, the floors are cold. And, and meanwhile, this guy is back at my other house and because uh, I bought everything, right? And the, the significant piece of the Family Law Act that changed that, that the lawyer had told me is that the family law it used to be that and when you're married, where we are, where you're married, everything that's you know, bought and purchased in the, in, during the marriage is family assets. And so it needs to be split, but that, right. It was like about a year before, like I went to see that lawyer and that lawyer knew that the family law was going to be changing in about a year to change it to that. If you bought anything you purchased prior or could show that the funds used to purchase anything during a marriage, um, was one of the parties, then that would remain that person's um, assets, and they only need to you only need to split the um, the appreciated value. And so that was a little gem of information that I had gotten from that lawyer way back then. And so it's just it's significant moving forward because um, so I moved out into this cabin, and then. I spent, I was there for like six months and it was cold and I mean, not that cold, but whatever. Would he still not warm and when? <laughs> and uh, so I, at one, it was actually a couple of my long girlfriends. One of the ones who I told you about had spent that long car ride being told that I was a lesbian. Her and another one of my close friends came up um, for a visit and they were just like, that woman, not that one, the other one, there were two of them that came up. The other one had coined this term bamboozled. She was like, we all were bamboozled by him. Like they were so, they, oh, I bless them. Like they really tried to give me hope through this whole process. Like that they also were duped. Like it wasn't like he put up a really good front on who he is. They were never duped by him saying that I was, you know, that shit crazy, but, um, the original, you know, the first three months, they also were, they believed his lies too. So that gave me some bit of comfort, I guess. So anyway, then I, um, so I, after they came for a visit and they really helped me remember who I was, I think on a whole other level, but anyway, I told him he had to move out. This was crazy. Like, here I was chopping wood to heat the cabin. Meanwhile, he's living in the other house, and he's just flipping the switch and turning the furnace on. And I've got a, you know, a a two-and-a-half-year-old, and and I'm doing all this. And I'm working. And at this point, you know, this is complicated by the fact my son doesn't want to be around him. And I was having – I was doing work, and my son started to be like, can you find anyone else but Daddy to watch me? Like, it was complicated. Um, And so – I did um, manage to get him out of the house, but of course he insisted on moving into the cabin, not going on his sweet merry way. And of course he didn't pay for anything. And then, um, and I just, to get into my house, I agreed because I didn't, he wouldn't get out. And so I did, I got back in the main house and then I decided I put up the cabins for 
fail. I was like, I, I can't, I've got to stop. Like I, I just not, I felt like there was no way to get him out. And so, and I couldn't afford life like this, right? I couldn't afford two houses and paying all the bills for both houses. And so I put it up for rent uh, for sale and then someone contacted me actually and and asked if they could rent it while it was for sale and that was the way I finally got him out of my houses and because I told him I'm like listen you've been living here for whatever now it's another six months or something paying nothing and so um he did he had to move out and essentially he did and um and then it was challenging and we're still you know litigating family litigation court stuff started about the following year he he um became you know quite uh he would live in tents and then at some point he got a car and he lived in his car and he was couch surfing he was very unreliable and asking me for money and he'd watch our so that was part of my son not wanting to go with him I think because he you know um he just wasn't stable and it was very all over the place and so <sighs> I've just now, uh, you know, here we are seven, seven years later, I just finished the trial. Um, and then we're waiting for the result of that trial. But it's been a very, very um, complex and he, he uh, probably not a surprise to anyone. He we got court orders and he never followed them. Um, and like we came up with parenting agreements, you know, detailed and he just didn't follow them one point we had a mediator and we each brought a friend with us to the mediator it was like this community version of mediation and and it was his friend actually at some point he's like I don't want to be rude but isn't the point of having an agreement to follow it I'm like yeah well said buddy and that was his friend who was there to support him but he realized here we are in mediation and all you know whatever 20 points of this agreement this separation agreement that we had my ex didn't follow any of it like yeah it's time someone start pointing that out and then and just to say like I did as soon as possible to be able to be divorced from this person I was divorced it became once I finally figured out my situation and I started to get myself back even though I felt like I was like I was a, like a shadow of myself. I took action. Like I did. I, in where in our province, you have to wait a year from separation to actually be divorced. And we did. And I didn't ask for any child support because I mean, he had no money anyway. It's like whatever still. Uh, so, but so I just did what I, like I just needed out and separated. And I still, but I still blamed myself. It's been a really hard go these last, years like I I found my way out but very challenging to uh, dig so before we, so, <laughs> sorry so before we get to the point where you dig yourself out of this yeah um as far as the court stuff goes because you had a, a many many years of, of being involved in court and mediation what are the biggest things uh, involved in the court that you wish you did differently or that you learned for other people yeah so um what I've learned for other people that has really paid off is write everything down. Like I said, write everything down like this, because this guy, I mean, for me, I mean, part of writing it down was because seven years is a long time to remember anything accurately, but even more so is this guy lies about everything. 
absolutely everything. And when I, like, he would take me to court online and I, he had no documentation for it. And I ultimately did. I like, here's an example. So he, where we live, when you don't have much money, you can get a free lawyer, a legal aid. And he lied to them and said that I was denying him parenting time. But the truth was he wasn't utilizing his parenting time. But they don't fact check. They don't check. And so he got a free lawyer and has had a free lawyer for five years. And I don't qualify for a lawyer, a free lawyer, because I still own that house. So I can't work because my son, we didn't get into where my son's at now, but he has a lot of complex needs. And so I had to stop working three years ago, but I still own my house. And so I, um, like, I, I had to stop working to be able to care for my son because he was in a, yeah, anyway. So that's a whole other part of the story. But, um, but because I own my house and I have, still have some equity in it, I don't qualify. But he, meanwhile, he is telling this legal aid department that I'm denying his parenting time. Even the only two things that, the reasons that he, that he would grounds that he would qualify for getting a free lawyer is that I'm denying his parenting time. He's being denied parenting time or that I'm abusing him. And so I knew it was one of those two lies because neither one of them are true. And, um, and so uh, to ask you what you would do differently, I really would have taken him to court five years sooner. And um, he was homeless. And he was, you know, he was suicidal and talked to his 11-year-old grandson about wanting to kill himself. Like, the guy was in a terrible state, and I just didn't want to do that to him. I just, even after everything I've told you, and I've only told you a fraction of what I've dealt with, I still thought, I just thought that he would do better if he could do better. Like, like I just thought he would because he... But so that is a regret I have that I didn't follow through with it sooner. But I felt like I was doing my best to uphold my son's rights. And that's how I continued on the whole thing. Like when I mentioned my son started saying that he didn't want to be like anybody but daddy can can watch me, you know, like that. And there was an incident that happened that my son um, described as daddy choking him. And so I took action. I called the minister. I tried to get help. And, but, and they said, you know, you can't help you go to court. And so I think I would have gone bigger, quicker, but I just kept thinking these, can he kept taking me to court for this? Like, or he'd say my brother and I, uh, and my son were going to go to Mexico to visit some friends there. And he agreed, he agreed to go, to let me go because you have to get a signature to go. But then, then he said, he revoked that. He was like, no, I'm not going to let you go unless you give me our son for overnight. I'm like, Oh, it was just this continual battle. But I, I worried that I knew that I needed to have enough proof in court of what he was doing. And so I just, and people would just help me like write it all down. And that's what I did. I wrote it all down and I started to do things like I, I got a calendar so I'd have my notes, I called them my parenting notes. I'd have these like places where I just, it was just journal entries. Like, you know, he saw his dad and then this happened. 
you know, his dad said this or whatever, like, oh, he asked me for $20 again, like these examples, or he called to say, I'm too depressed, I can't watch our son today, you know, things like this. I just, and then I started taking the, the, the key things and putting it on a calendar because I realized after enough of these, because he'd take me to court, these emergency applications, he'd lose. We'd get a new court order, then he wouldn't follow it again. And this has been the pattern for years. Like, I am not kidding. Actually, my last lawyer told me that he had made 16 emergency applications. Every time with a free lawyer of no financial consequence to him. And every time he'd lose. And I, like, I was just this ongoing, ugh. So, so back to the calendar. I would just put three things on there. Like, even just planned visits canceled like like when we had a court order of days of like when visits were supposed to be in phone calls I would just because I would give a visual for what he said he was doing but then I had it tracked on a calendar for what actually happened and during this trial he actually said he never missed any parenting time he said it he's like lost right there like I, but I had these years of my calendars and at the time like I was keeping them as contemporaries notes like I would just and I am a more reliable witness in court than he is. And he it was he was very clear on the stand. He was not. He showed his, his some of his true colors on the stand. And so I think, I mean, I don't know the outcome, but I think that was uh, very significant in my being able to show the pattern. Because this is, it's all so dirty and, and all these lies and making these big stories about who I am and what I'm doing. But then I had this running record of what actually happened and I and you know it's interesting because I was first I was first told to write it down by that lawyer because she could see that I would need it someday then I was told to write stuff down because of my son what was going on with my son and his behaviors and what was going on so those they became useful that way and then the third reason they're useful is I actually think they're what really helped me and my sanity through it all is because I think um, as you've heard me say like I just I, I fell to these beliefs and I, I think what happened is there would be these, like, he knew he, it was like in those first three months, he saw all of my vulnerabilities and then he used them. It was, and I, and I go back and forth between believing or thinking that he did it on purpose or is he just that sick that that's what he did? Like he used the vulnerability of my brother, but then the loss of my brother, but then used it in other places. He knew how important it was to me to um, not repeat family patterns. And then he would bring it up. You're just, you're doing the same thing as your parents, which I am doing nothing like my, like my story with my son is so dramatically different, but he knew enough to use it. It's just like that first, how you pointed out that very first that line, he managed to make it about me. And turn it on me and like and make eyes ah, just so with all of that and the crazy mm-hmm. making that had happened, mm-hmm. uh, going through the court process to where you are now, how has your healing been, and what were the biggest things that you've been working on? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. My healing has been, um, it's been a lot of different stages, so, um. A few years ago, let's see. So four years ago, I got autoimmune disease of the liver. And I thought I also started having symptoms, like I thought I was having a stroke. (laughs) 
And I really, I, I, again, you know, these poignant things that I have heard in my mind, um, like the, I've, <laughs> I've ruined my life. I, you know, these, with these repeating themes, I heard, I, I, it's like, I knew if I didn't do something different, he was going to kill me and not like kill me. I mean, I have had those, <laughs> I've had those worries too. And he tried to run me over with a car like this and that stuff too. But it was more energetically. I was like, if I don't find a way through this, I am going to die. And I have this young child and now I have autoimmune disease of the liver. And I feel like my husband, it was, it turned out to be high blood pressure. That was the, um, that I thought I was having a stroke. Like I couldn't use my left arm. Like it was scary as all get out. And I took that in that moment. Like I, I realized when I got this autoimmune disease thing, I was like, absolutely not. No way. I'm not, this man is not going to kill me. I have not come from, (laughs) I have not come from what I've come from, manage what I've managed to let that happen. And what I did is, at that time, I just started doing all of the things I knew to do good for myself that I'd known and done most of my life. But then through all this stress in this marriage, I, you know, and he had said, like I said, he, you know, I was raw vegan, whatever I'm not now, but I always been nutrition conscious and I had let his, you know, I thought that he was that. And then suddenly he's ordering pepperoni pizza to the house and whatever, if that's how people live, but it's not how I live. And, um, so I just, and I just fell to it. I just try in, in the process. And so I just started then doing literally, that's what I told and I healed my liver and I do not, and it's not a reversible thing apparently to the average, you know, what doctors tell you. And I did, I healed it. I was like, I can't let that happen. And I can't let him take, take me out. Like I felt like I was, you know, I got out, but I hadn't really got out because I was still being controlled and manipulated by this person. And it, and it continues. And I have, but what I have done, and I think one of the biggest things that really helped me heal was when I, and I started looking back on all, first of all, things like (laughs) your podcast and all of the little nuggets of help that all those brave people who spoke, I'm so grateful for them. And uh, realizing because that's where I realized I'm not the only one. And I, I started to really get a grip on me. Not like it's not about me that this could happen to anyone. And I was just like, I didn't ruin my life. This man came in and turned my life upside down. And I, I, there's something I can do. It wasn't because I did something wrong. It wasn't because I deserved it. All the things these like that. Um, so that really made a difference. And then um, part of um, also, of course, I continue to get counseling throughout. I have, and I still, I see a counselor, but I, um, but I, I think when I really started to look back on, on, and, and see all the many, many things, even though I was deep, deeply enmeshed. And I don't know if that's the right word. I know that's a, for things, but I was deeply in this situation that I was horrified I was in. I thought it was my fault. I didn't know how to get out. And even in that, now I can look back and I can see how I was actually still 
working my way out. Like the, like I am so thank God I bought that house or that all that money would be gone. Like, and it's what, like, it's what you, it's kept me, like it supported me through so much. Like I, there were little things along the way that I did still do. Like I, I couldn't, I couldn't hear that counselor who told me that I could um, make the choice to leave. I couldn't hear her then, but I, I did eventually. Like I, there were um, so many ways that I was holding on to my dignity that I didn't see at the time. Like I felt so ashamed in the middle of it. Um, like, and I think because, like, because he was so good at fun, even though um, I thought I did all this work, you know, I was so, and that, I went through a phase of that. I was so disappointed. Like, I really thought that I had handled my childhood, <laughs> which now I can laugh at because we never really do, right? And this is a whole, and now I'm at a point where I'm like, wow, I, <laughs> I got to handle my childhood stuff at a whole new level like yes I did but on some level like I had come to tell myself like I successfully avoided this my whole life so that meant there was something else to face and something else to manage and I tell you I was on that he um no surprise apparently I found out this is quite common for these people is they find um lawyers that are narcissists themselves and I swear I just told my lawyer I was like this lawyer is like him with a law degree and I, his lawyer had me cross-examine, cross, he was cross-examining me for four hours. And I, I, it was one of the hardest things I've done, but I did it. And I have always, like, I've, I've been an advocate for a lot of people and a lot of um, marginalized populations. And, like, I'm advocating for my son very strongly, but advocating for myself has been very hard, uh, just in my life, like sticking up for myself. And I think that's part of why I, I got, I'm, I ended up in the, in the position I was in my marriage and how I, it was really hard for me, to, but eventually I managed to find my voice and get out. But, um, I feel like that whole court process, as hard as it was, it also was, it was like my opportunity to stand in my truth, like, I was so exposed the most vulnerable of things were being talked about there. And I just did it. I just like, I realized my need for um, speaking the truth was stronger than any amount of this man um, trying to shame or acute all the accusations, whatever it was. I knew the truth and somehow I managed to get back to the truth. And I just had to stand in that. To, and that's how I went through this whole um, the last couple of years of really standing in my truth. And unfortunately COVID really did a number on this. So like I said, I would have, I would have liked to have uh, gone to court five years ago, but in truth um, we actually finally did have court um, booked last year and it was booked for um, early March, 2020. And we were the first two days where, anyone who had trials booked had to go before the judge and they determined whether it was emergency enough. And we went and the judge said it wasn't. And so that's why it was a whole other year. Well, pretty much because we, January, we had the end of January, we had four days of the trial and they, because again, because of COVID, they didn't give us the five days that we had been allotted. They cut it back to four. And so then that's why it then moved into April. So essentially a whole year later, um, 
to get the trial done. But what's also, there's some beauty in that. And, and what that is, is that it was a whole other year of him to show his lies. And, um, and again, I'm recording all of this through this time. And then he's got more court orders that he's not following. He's still blaming me. He's, and <clears throat> it just gave me um, more evidence under more scrutiny. So I, you know, I'm trying to look, <laughs> trying to look, um, look at that as the positive of it. But I think what also is part of um, the healing process has been that I'm learning to place the blame where it is. And, and I, I was really, um, I think one of uh, my faults is that I, I really, I have always thought the best of people even though I don't really have reason to think that, but I've always been that way and given people the benefit of the doubt. And I just, and so, and then I take on the blame and I've done that. And I'm really in this process, I'm learning to place the blame back to, um, to where uh, it belongs. And, um, and I know the problem is, is I know it's through his struggles and he gave me his great victim stories and it's all of that. And, that's not how I live my life. I'm not blaming. I'm still not blaming him. All of this, and it's not like. Uh, I think, unfortunately, we, you know, victims. He's just used it very skillfully to be a victim to get what his needs match. And um, and if you have any words of advice for uh, everyone who is listening, uh, mm-hmm. words of wisdom, what would they be? Hmm. Um, well, I have this, uh, one of the, um, one of the things that I've, I've learned recently and it's really helped me. And I think it's part of what's helped me put, uh, the years in perspective, things that happened throughout the years into perspective. And that is that, um, with these people, the accusations that they make are actually confessions, um, and I think that that has, when I can look back on our whole time together, I see that. And so, um, but your ask is what, I mean, I, to me, like, like the combination of knowing that that's like, for me, that's really helped me on un, like unravel what happened. And I, I, I think what I would, uh, what really also really helped me is that looking back on what happened and seeing those little, little bits of hope and finding the dignity in what I did. So very hard to see where my life went and what I got um, wrapped up in, but to see how even throughout it, I still, there were still little gems of, um, uh, of myself. Like I didn't, I obviously didn't lose myself altogether cause I'm still here and I got out. And, um, and then I think, you know, I'm not really this whole thinking of, Oh, things happen for a reason. Like I, I think I used to think that I don't think that anymore. <laughs> I think people just know, need to know that this could, could happen to anybody. And, um, just to keep going and do like, keep going until you're out. Like, if it doesn't feel right, it's not right. Like, I remember somewhere early on, like, I, I saw this video. I don't even know whose it was, but they were, like, when I was first learning about narcissists, and they're, like, if you're Googling and questioning someone's behavior, 
it probably means the situation you're in isn't right. And I just thought, oh, that's what's right. And it's kind of like these little gems of, for me, when there's things that I keep remembering, those are the little gems that they have so much um, truth in them. And I, I think that is what um, I would uh, hope that other people could find is those little things that did keep them going that could um, just get to help get them out. Like, and to see that there are, even when we can't, yeah. I don't know. I guess I, I'm not sure if I really answered that question. I just want people to know that they didn't do this to themselves and that there's ways out. Like, and keep going until you get out. And, um, and what I find really challenging, I think maybe why I'm stumped on the question is I'm, I'm not even really all the way out. And like I told you, I, when I, when I messaged you about this, like I felt like someday I wanted to be enough out to help someone out. Like, I am so grateful that um, there are enough other people speaking out um, to help people like me get to a point where they can speak out. So, yeah, I just want people to know they're not alone and it's not something they did. Yeah. Well, Leah, I want to thank you for being here. And I also want to say, as you kind of reiterated, but for you yourself, you, you have nothing to be ashamed about. You know, you mentioned yeah. that earlier and you said you were disappointing yourself and you have nothing to be disappointing yourself. You were duped as your friends put it, you were bamboozled <laughs> yeah, great. and you were used as cover for this person's uh, life. And then, you know, that cover turned into being a leech who just sat there. Um, and was, uh, you know, like you got a renter and then that renter didn't pay you a dollar and then went to the tenant board and and abused the system. And that's what you got sitting on your couch at home doing nothing. (laughs) And, you know, you shouldn't be ashamed of yourself. You know, you have nothing to be ashamed of. You were, you know, the, the wool was pulled over your eyes by a professional, uh, who does this for their life and for their living essentially. And without people, you know, without doing that to you, he was living, you know, uh, on people's couches and things like that. So I just want to thank you for sharing your story, putting it all out there, letting yourself kind of hang out for everyone to see all warts (laughs) and everything and all. Um, So a big thank you from me and everyone who is listening today. Oh, you're so welcome. And it really is my pleasure. Like I, yeah, please, everybody take what you can and yeah. I'm really, I'm really glad I got to this point. Yeah, thank you. Well, I'm thankful that you're here. And for everyone uh, who is listening, and just for you, just so you all know that we had one minute to spare before you had to go. So this was perfect. <laughs> and so that. on that note, so for me and Leah, everyone, I hope you have a good night.